Hello, NSA. This is Jim Cathcart. I'm your chair this year for the Voices of Experience. What you've said you want from VOE are things like the following. Meaty interviews and insights from active, successful speakers and business leaders. Inspiring stories and messages from substantial sources. Motivating messages that invigorate you to grow your own speaking career. Insights into business models and success techniques that have been proven to work for others. A better understanding of our profession and the marketplace in which we operate. An understanding of the many facets of NSA in the USA and Global Speakers Federation worldwide as a resource for those of us who speak for a living. And creative ideas as to how you can do what you do even better and more successfully. Well, those are my goals as well. That's what I'll be bringing you this year, and you have a lot of new friends to meet and a lot of great information to discover. So let's get rolling. This year, VOE has a team of special correspondents to help explore parallel universes to the speaking industry. Those are the people who are not speakers as such, but they also use the spoken word in their craft, and they approach it in a very certain way. They may have discovered some insights that we haven't. The first correspondent I appointed is Kevin McNulty. Kevin grew up around storytelling. He jumped on the chance to be our expert on this topic, and he traveled to the storybook town of Jonesboro, Tennessee, to the National Storytelling Festival. He interviewed storytellers, and he's discovered things that are both different and alike to NSA in the way that we approach stories and storytelling. Let's hear what he learned at that festival. Tents set up everywhere. Big tents, small tents, the whole town is just, really, it's it's a storytelling town. They've got this beautiful Hall of Fame, uh, I should say, museum there with a beautiful, quaint storytelling theater there. So in any event, storytellers from all around the world, they show up at this place, and then people from all around the world, and I do mean thousands, show up to see their favorite storyteller, and then those who they, they're not aware of. That's so, exciting. That is very exciting. You know, you think about what we see day to day. We see storytelling on television. We hear it at conferences. We read books about it. But when you go back in time, so to speak, you know, and you walk into a small mountain community like that, that's just as quaint as quaint, you know, like, like the definition of quaint in the, in the dictionary, um, and all these people are there for the same reason, and that is to enjoy, to express, and to savor storytelling. Wow. It's, it's like a folk music festival without the music. 100%. You just nailed it. And let me tell you, first of all, the storytellers and the storyteller, uh, you know, those who come to listen to stories, mm-hmm. these are some serious folks about storytelling. <laughs> you know, don't be messing with my storytelling. Don't mess right. with the storytelling. <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and here's what, what's interesting, and, and I would actually discern s- somewhat differently from storytelling and their audience members and speaking and, and, and their audience members. Sto- the audiences of storytellers, they know the craft of storytelling. Hmm. So, you know, think about the pressure. Uh, yeah. Of going to tell a story in front of really and and the and we saw let's see we saw Jeannie the Wednesday night before the the festival starts, and I would say it was a tent that filled three or four thousand people, it, it was huge, wow and um, 
and these these folks, as as I just got to know them a little bit more and talk to them in the in the days coming, I realized that they know who storytellers are. They know the craft of it. They understand that you know what it takes to come up with a good story, and of course, they know all the great storytellers that are out there. So, in any event, the first night we went and saw uh, Jeannie, uh, and mm-hmm. we we also uh, uh, videotaped some of her show. And I and I got to be honest with you, we saw some great storytellers, but. Jeannie stood up there amongst the top of them. I've never in my mm-hmm. life, honestly, seen a person tell stories for, and she went for about an hour and a half. And I, I could hardly see a break between laughs. It was like this one wow. stream of laugh, people, you know, just bellied over. And, and so, and, <laughs> and well, it, this tells you about her level of skill in storytelling because, again, these are all people who know what storytelling is all about. You got to come with mm-hmm. your best stuff. So in any event, we watched her, and then then the next day we got up, and we essentially tried to find who were the best storytellers around, and we interviewed them, asked them questions like, you know, everything from where did you start, and, you know, what what are the best practices of storytelling? Mm-hmm. And so we came across people like... Uh, you know, Donald Davis is is known as one of the the great storytellers in in the United States, and we enjoyed him tremendously. He told a lot of stories about his childhood. There were others that really intrigued me. Uh, however, uh, uh, one storyteller, her name was Carmen Didi. She is a Cuban immigrant, and she came to uh, to the United States as just a young child. And I mean to tell you, she blends and she lives in in, in Georgia. So mm-hmm. now, when you think of storytelling. The South really is the mecca for storytelling, you know. Sure. Yeah, and as part of the the structure of the uh, the culture physically, you know, the people there's a unlike an industrial town, you know, where the people go to work and then they come back home. In the South, the original culture was more of a like a plantation culture where everybody was around the same people all the time. At work and after work, more of a farming culture, an agricultural uh, setting. And in that kind of a setting, there are going to be stories shared much more openly and readily than there would be in a, in a more industrial uh, setting. That, that's exactly right. And the, and the key there to what you're saying is that there was, you know, storytelling was in some ways the entertainment. So when, when whether exactly. it was, whether it was finished, you know, farming or, or or whatever was happening, at the end of the night, you know, people ate dinner and then they sat on the porch. Exactly. Well, I can remember that growing up. You know, I grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas, and we'd go to Louisiana, which was the the main one for storytelling for me mm. in Louisiana, where my mom had grown up. My aunt Lizzie and Aunt Lucy had a farm down there. The two <laughs> spinster aunts, and and they were in their I guess their sixties. I don't remember, and uh, working out there on this little ten acre farm, and they had hogs, and they'd slop the hogs, and they'd do all the thing. You know, go out and pump the water from a well, and and uh, go gather eggs from the chickens. And we would sit around on the porch in these old chairs that had um, uh, cowhide bottoms that still had the the hair on the on the hide. You know the yes. ones I'm talking about. Yes. <laughs> and then uh, there'd be one or two rocking chairs, but most of them straight back. You know, like ladder back chairs that were homemade. And we'd sit out there, and the the older folks would tell stories, and us kids would just sit there, spellbound. 
you know, hey, 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 Uncle Ed, tell that story about when you went down to the creek and you're moving in the snake and the deer and the, oh, tell that story. You know, we couldn't wait to hear the same story year after year after year in addition to the new ones. That's, that's you're exactly right. And, and goodness gracious, don't leave out one of the important parts of the story because somebody <laughs> will jump in and say, hey, you forgot this part. That you're. Absolutely right. Hey, wait a minute. You didn't say it that way last year. Last year, remember, you said it was a bell, not not a not a chime. That's right. <laughs> and so now, Jim, no, wow. now exactly. And that's what you're describing at really this very, on the one hand, professional storytelling festival that mm-hmm. somehow still has this flair of people sitting around on the porch listening to a story. Now, of course, they have all these different venues as well, or, or, or types of stories. So, for instance, depending on who, wh- what you want to listen to, there, there again are those who are more of the southern storytellers, and they may tell stories of their childhood or about, you know, aunt so-and-so. And then yeah. there's others that I met, Alton Young, uh, excuse me, Alton Chung. He's mm-hmm. from Hawaii. He's of Japanese descent. And he has this great story, uh, the series of stories, really, that, but that he, he got from his parents and his grandparents mm-hmm. about the 442nd Regiment over in Germany fighting in World War II. I'll be honest with you, I didn't even know there was sort of a Japanese regiment fighting in World War II. Wow. Well, he learned from his parents and grandparents and others that there were these many stories out there that that too many of us don't know about. And so these are the stories that he's telling. And I mean... There's literally chills going up the back of my spine now from listening to the passion and the depth and the the emotion that he puts into telling these stories about uh, about these Japanese fighters over in World War II who were also, as you well know, you know the 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 camps, the internment camps that they were in here, and there was this sort of this this uh, crazy thing going on in their head that on the one hand they were fighting for this country and on the other hand they had all this other other things going on but just fascinating historical tales that he learned not just from his folks but then later on looking into this uh, this regiment and then then there were there were other just uh, you know there was Barbara McBride Smith very interesting interesting storyteller from Texas but she 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 told stories, uh, you know, of, of Greek mythology and such. And so wow. you have this. What a and, change of context. Well, exactly. Yeah. You know, at first you see her, she's up there and she tells other stories. Of course, many of these tellers, they're, they're telling multiple stories, either in one tell or in various venues around Jonesboro. And so she did tell stories about her upbringing and her father, just really funny stuff. But here's this lady with this Texas Southern accent also talking about Greek mythology and, and all other sorts of things. And so I guess the point is is that when you go to these festivals, you, you just realize that it is much like speaking, that there are storytellers from A to Z. Some mm-hmm. are very simple people who have grown up in the traditions of storytelling, who talk a little bit more about, you know, stories as you will, teachings and lessons or just stories from their childhood. And then others who are great academics, PhDs, and people who are very immersed in the crafting and the, and the history of storytelling. What should speakers do 
to begin to, you know, assuming they didn't grow up in the South or in a storytelling culture where they yeah. where it just came back naturally, what should they do to refine their craft to learn the the, the uh, art of storytelling? Well, that, that's a great question, Jim, and so so nicely put because and the way that you set it up. That you almost, you, you, one, I say, you know, have a paradigm shift about storytelling. R- recognize that there is, it, it's beyond just the anecdotal story that we tend to look at, but to start to recognize just, as, as I think many uh, particularly experienced speakers, certainly yourself and others, recognize the power, the absolute power of a story. Mm-hmm. R- really, I mean, it, it's, it seems oh, obvious. Yeah, Do you leave an imprint for life. An imprint for life. And, and this is yeah. what particularly those who don't use stories or those who don't really think that they can be a storyteller as a speaker or use stories. in Because I do run across folks like that sure. from time to time who just say, man, I just can't get a hold of the storytelling thing. <laughs> and, so, and so I say have the paradigm shift and recognize, one, that storytelling is, in fact, a skill to be learned. Mm-hmm. There are, without a doubt, there are the Jeannie Robertsons and there, there, and, and there are the Jim Cathcarts and there's others who may have grown up in the tradition of storytelling. And I would, I would say myself as well, mm-hmm. that, that it, it might be, it, it's a bit inherent, you know. And, and, and then there's the superstars who have something, this innate ability, you can't put your finger on it, but it sets them apart, even those who are students of storytelling. So, so there is that. We, we get that. However, for the average speaker recognize that storytelling is a skill and if you become a student of storytelling you start to learn things that you could never believe and then you begin to build the skill and so you know i say that's the first thing recognize Mm -hmm. it's a skill to be developed and that everybody can develop it and of course as you start to study story storytelling you also recognize that while you may not see yourself as somebody funny or something, somebody really dramatic, you start to find, you know, as they say, your own voice, your own style of storytelling. And yeah. it starts to emerge. But you can't know that until you j- jump in and really start to understand and learn storytelling. So um, th- that, that would be the first place. And the other thing okay. that I... The other thing that I would say about storytelling that storytellers do and, and also great speakers do, and that is that start living it. In other words, start looking and noticing everywhere for stories. I interviewed a guy named Buck Creasy. Buck P. Creasy. Of he, course he was. Oh, Lord. <laughs> I mean, have, what a classic name for, you know, it's like Dolly Parton for a country exa- singer. Exactly. Buck P. Creasy. Yeah. Now, he lives in the foothills of, of Kentucky, in eastern Kentucky. And uh, he, uh, he, he's got really one of the only storytelling uh, international storytelling radio stations. Mm. And, uh, it, it, an interesting guy. Interesting That's guy. But we can tap on the road even. Say that again? We can tap that resource even when we're on the road. Oh, without you better believe it. That's exactly right. Now, I asked him about, you know, pe- people learning to tell stories and, and, and where do you find stories. And he gave me this one little nugget. He said, well, Kevin, you know, as many storytellers say, and, and as Jeannie said, when I asked her this question, she said, well, Kevin, some of them just drop from heaven. <laughs> you <know? laughs> yeah. You know, but the point of all storytellers, that we'll tell you, yeah. is that they're all around us. And mm-hmm. if you just start, and this is what Buck said to me. He said, well, here's one way to do it, and here's the way that I do it. He said, I might go into an old antique store, and especially if there's an old timer there, 
-hmm. He said he'll walk up to some item, some really cool-looking item, a desk or something, and he'll say, so what's the story on this this lamp here? And he said, you just won't believe some of the stories that come out of people's mouths. And and real quick, one of the things that I did after I heard him say that, I went to, I I lead a Sunday school class, and before before we started the the, the actual uh, class, I was sitting around, we have this really eclectic group of people in this Sunday school class. I'm talking about university professors to homeless people. It's just, it's crazy. And so several of them are sitting around, and uh, I just threw the question out somewhat in the same way that Buck suggested. And I said... I said, I'm just curious, and this was deliberate, too. I said, I'm just curious, did, did any of you all hitchhike when you were teenagers or when you got out of high school? And boom, Jim, the stories could not, I couldn't stop them from coming. Wow. Yeah. It, I mean, even including. What a great question. Oh, the, the, this, this, this one gentleman there, he's probably pushing 80. David, he's a, he's a retired university professor, very, very academic, articulate, straight-laced kind of guy. When he said, "Yeah, sure, I did," I couldn't believe my eye, my my ears. First of all, and then, then everybody just couldn't wait to get their little story in about hitchhiking. Man, I love it. Well, I think we have tapped a um, an area not only of fascination and and interest, but a, a, I think we've tapped some energy that our members are going to say, "Ooh, ooh, ooh!" I can't wait for the next storytelling segment. Well, I sure hope so. So thank you for the work you've done and are doing on this. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to this year of story exploration with you. Jim, it is an absolute pleasure and frankly an honor to be working with you as well. If you're as fascinated and excited about this topic as Kevin and I are, you'll be happy to know that we're making storytelling a regular feature on VOE this year. We will learn more on the use of stories and the craft and nature of storytelling. There will be a lot more richness available to you on this topic. Music of the Month is a new feature for Voices of Experience this year. We have so many talented musicians, singers, and songwriters in NSA. What I decided to do was seek them out and get them to offer one or more of their works for you to hear each month. So you'll see another side of some of our well-known NSA personalities. This month, we're featuring Bruce Turkell. Front door slams, whopper slapping rain, about an hour north of town. Here we go again Got mad, got loud, couldn't take no more Cause we've been here so many times before That I saw your face in the desert moon On the road to Santa Fe And I swear I hear your voice calling me From a hundred miles away It's still burning Blazing bonfire The flame might have flickered, but the fire never died. Go ahead and run, you stubborn man. You'll be home by ten, cause here I am. Staring at the fireplace, missing you. 
the flame might flicker, but the fire never dies. You make me crazy. I'm crazy about you too. Nothing really matters. Nothing really matters. Nothing really matters without you. Again and again The flame might have flickered But the fire never died It was raging in my heart The flame might have flickered But the fire never died The fire never, the fire never The fire never died The fire never the fire never, the fire never died. The fire never, the fire never, the fire never died. Raging in my heart. The fire never, the fire never, the fire never died. And now a blast from our recent past, Brian Walter. You probably remember Brian as a former award-winning host of VOE. He's developed a way to explore things that people do with their ideas to profit from speaking, but things that are not actually speaking. He'll take us on a guided tour. I developed a concept, what I call adjacencies, which is if the client trusts you to do one thing, most likely they will trust you to do something that's right next to it. Not okay. the same Makes thing, but, but right next to it. For example, the first aha I got from this is with that age-old tool that all speakers love, PowerPoint. Mm -hmm. Now, I started out loathing PowerPoint like most speakers, and then I decided, okay, uh, I'm going to try and get better at this, and I'm going to hire designers. And so I have really good visuals because I pay people mm -hmm. to, to do it for me, and the clients have noticed that. And then one meeting, a client said, you know, Brian, we really like your PowerPoint visuals could we hire you to do the visuals for our senior executive? And of course, in NSA, you always learn when a client asks you for things, you say, absolutely. <laughs> now, did I personally do the PowerPoint? No. But I had the same designer who worked for me. Uh, I said, okay. And so we, we did his PowerPoint, and they really liked it. And you know, at the next meeting, they said, can you do it again? I said, sure. Plus, can you do the rest of the executives? And then I suddenly said, instead of like this favor thing, I could make some money off this. And so you're like, well, how do you how do you do this? Well, you hire the designer, you manage it, and you mark them up. Mm -hmm. And it started there. It started with PowerPoint. And then I started that 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 same journey, that same perspective that you said, which is like, okay, what's the parallel universe for me? I said, okay, so what else is adjacent to speaking? Well, I thought, okay, who else is speaking during the meeting? The executives. And, and a lot of NSA people are coaches. I'm a quasi-coach. That's not a real uh, big thing for me. But I thought, how can I make executives look good on stage? So I said, okay, I can design and produce and rehearse the executives having a talk show. And Your like, talk show. No, I mean, the talk show live in the meeting yeah. about their stuff, right. about content I have no nothing about. But they know 
quite a bit. And so I've so learned. So you're the Jay Leno or Dave Leno exactly. to I, their team. I prefer to think of myself as Ellen, like Brian Fair Ellen. Fair enough. Brian <laughs> Ellen. But I don't actually make them dance. <laughs> Very good. Now, something that occurred to me is you're hiring the expert on graphics or yes. visuals mm-hmm. to uh, to do the work for you. But the thing that makes that valuable to the client is not just that you have a person that will do that, but that person will do it under your guidance, your creativity, right. your yes. sense of fun, your your understanding of their organization. So you're adding value just by the simple fact that you might have hired me, if I'm the graphic designer, to do the, the technical work for you. Exactly, because I didn't give up who I was. In right. other words, there was a certain style of visuals that were consistent with my style. Yeah. Now, I didn't have to be exactly like me for the executive, but there was a more playful, a more engaging approach, which came through with visuals, which they liked, which was better than death by bullets. (laughs) And so it's like, so we applied that. So then I thought, okay, well, what else is next to speaking? You know, what's what's with it? And Mm -hmm. for example, like the agenda. Now, sometimes as speakers, I just do a speaker slot and I'm done. But most of us, I like, would like to think we have multiple things we can do during the meeting. It's like, well, I can do my keynote. I can do a breakout. I can do this 10-minute thing. And so I would spend a lot of times uh, talking with the meeting planner or the client and saying, okay, here's how you can fit me into the agenda. Mm-hmm. Well, then I flipped it. Okay, what if I develop the agenda for them? And some people are thinking, no, no, they wouldn't want that. If they're not a professional meeting planner, and most of my clients, it's like they're like a vice president of something or a director of something, and they're now in charge of their department's global leadership summit or their, you know, account manager's off-site blah, blah, blah meeting. This is not their day job. So the idea of saying, why don't I'll do all of this and you can react to it and tell me what you like or don't like. And they're like, mm-hmm. thank you. You would do that for me? <laughs> for money? Yeah, yeah. I will, of course, do it for money. And that certainly makes me bulletproof. Because what happens next year uh, when they are in charge of the same meeting? Do they want to now do that work? Mm-mm. No. So here's the weird principle. How much of your client's job can you do? Oh, that's a good question. I like that. Because we say, well, it's solve problems. So their problem is mm-hmm. they have too much to do. Because any time, and here's the opportunity, any time you have a client where that's not their sole job to organize that meeting, this is added work. And it's not only added work. It's something they're not studying as a, as mm-hmm. a craft to become skilled at. Mm-hmm. And it's something you live with every day. Exactly. And they get credit. In other words, what's going to make them happy is when the meeting is great. Mm-hmm. Because they were given this task. This is like a project for them. And they don't care how it gets done. They just want it to get done well. And you know what? If you make their life easier... They're going to find the money to pay you. I'm not saying you stop speaking. My say, this is an and. Speak and develop this. Speak and provide them with video. Speak and develop their agenda for them. Speak and be the liaison to AV. Something as simple as you know how to talk to the 19-year-old AV nerds at the hotel who are wearing black. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know what to say to them so because most of them, it's like plug-in projector, Maybe do lavalier without it being horrible. That's the end of my Kill skill the light set. So they don't see the yeah. speaker. They only and see so, the slides. And so, so I've actually <laughs> said, would you like to me to be the liaison uh, between you know the meeting and all the presenters and the AV company? And they're like, would you do that? Of course, for Marfi, mm-hmm. absolutely. So he, all these things are adjacencies where we can say, 
Let's use all of our expertise with the same client we're getting paid for. So you don't do another sale. These are all additional things you can do. Same client, same event. One travel. One, one travel. One hotel room. And um, and one prep time. Yeah. Now, to give you some of how lucrative this, this can be, mm-hmm. uh, here is a thing. I did this la- last month. One client, they were a, a, a credit union. They're like the fourth largest, fourth or fifth largest in the United States. They're having an all-hands meeting, probably about 1,000 people there. And I presented. And I did a custom game show. And I did three sets of parody songs. I did a talk show that I led and designed with them. I did a team-building thing with their executives. I did the PowerPoint for their executives. I did a consulting with the CEO on his message. And I rented T-shirt cannons that all the executives got to shoot off from stage. (laughs) All one sale. And I quadrupled what my speaking fee would be. I'll bet. Wow. Especially if I start really low. But yes. (laughs) No, but that's that's a, the brilliant leveraging of an opportunity to be of greater service without really changing what they need for the meeting. I mean, you're you're enhancing what they're going to do with the meeting, but you're not. They're still going to meet. It's still going to be the same place. Still, basic parts are all in place. The moving parts you're taking care of and making it easier for them. Yep, and they've got to be in love with you. Well, what the the love part, and it's like, and when it comes to corporate relationships, how would we like that love expressed? Yes, which is with repeat business. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like to say, I through this type of approach, I have what I call the barnacle school of client relationship, <laughs> which I glom onto them like a barnacle, and you'll need explosives to get me off. Now, think of it: if you're doing more of your client's job, right? then they love you because you've made their life easier. So when suddenly it's the next year comes along and they're in charge of that meeting again, what they're going to do is they're going to contact you and say, hey, Jim, can we actually contract with you for three meetings next year to do all that stuff that you did before? And you, you of course, say, absolutely, absolutely. absolutely." And so suddenly you have contracts Mm -hmm. in the future calendar, in the future year, all because you found a way to make adjacencies work for you. And you can take your own marketing messages and enhance those with the added value items, whereas you wouldn't have been mentioning them before. Absolutely. Yeah. And also you can go further in the organization. Here's example how. We all say, well, the deeper you can get into an organization, the more security you have, the more value you can provide. Well, how do you do that? You meet people who work in other departments of the company. So if you're help if you I'm helping like one client and they represent one department and I'm now liaising with all of the presenters, I'm helping to do all of the agenda. I'm meeting leaders in other departments. They have a good experience with me. Gosh, I, I help them, I help them craft their message, I help them do their PowerPoint, I did a video about their department. They saw me speak, so I've got a little bit of a cool factor going. Mm-hmm. Then they're like, "Brian, we're having our own meeting. Can we hire you to to do that?" And of course, the answer is Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Adjacencies, they work. It's always a blast talking to Brian Walter. I love his energy, his ideas of volunteering, learning new skills, and making more money. One of the really cool things my next guest, Tim Gard, has done during his career is apply the concept of leverage. He's found a way to leverage what he's bringing to the table for his clients and make an even bigger opportunity out of it. And you can too. One of the things that I do is I take the keywords or catchphrases that I use in my program and try to come up with tangible representations of those um, stuff. I call them resources that they can take back with them. 
I spoke for a government group, and one of the things that caused them stress was they they said that people say to them, "You take care of it. That's why you get the big bucks." So, <laughs> which I, in government obviously it, you, is true. Yeah, yeah, you hear this all the time, and so I had dollar bills, replica dollar bills made up that are about two feet long and about a foot wide that look like a dollar has my picture on it uh, according to treasury you have to change it 20 percent put my own picture and change a bunch of stuff package it in groups of six and i tell people the next time somebody says you take care of it you get the big bucks you hand them this and you say now you have the big bucks you take care of it and <laughs> and it was a hit you Plus know it's passing the buck literally it's literally yeah, passing the I buck love that. that's right so so things like that um i have my major credit card on the front it says this is a major credit card on the back, it says some other form of identification. So when I check in a hotel, they'll say, you know, it, you know, it's, it's like, do you have a major credit card? Yes, I do. And they look at it, and then they'll say, do you have some other form of ID? And when you turn it over, it has some other form of ID. Um, they look like a credit card. They're printed like a credit card. Yeah. I sell them for a dollar, and they're actually my business card. So my the number on the front of the major credit card is my phone number, and on the back is my website. I sell them for a dollar. My customers buy my business card for a dollar and then can't wait to show it to other people. (laughs) That's leverage. I like that a lot. Well, the the cool thing about you is you are funny. It's not that you do funny. You are funny. You're a guy who looks at life in a humorous way. You see, as Bill Gove used to say, you got to think funny. You know, you've got to see the world through a filter that's got smiles all over it. And if you do that, then you discover these things, and then, and then what you do is you go back to the how do I make this substantial and useful. You go to that form of thinking, and you find some tool or some toy or some some technique that then allows you to leverage it and and actually earn a bigger profit from it too. Well, and that's while exa- other people are promoting you for free. That's correct, yeah. and and that's the beauty of it is like. Uh, if you go to timguard.com or any of my YouTube, you can see videos. And one of them has, in my carry-on bag, I have orange chicken feet sticking out of the out of the bag. <laughs> orange chicken and, feet and it's sticking whole, out of your bag. It's the whole rubber chicken. And, and yeah. people think I do it because it's funny. And it is. But the reason I did it was is that when you put your, your carry-on bag in wheels first, it doesn't fit sometimes. So you have to put it in sideways. People would come behind me when I couldn't watch them, and they would move my bag to put their bag in, and then my bag wouldn't fit. I'd have to check it. Yeah. Since I put the chicken feet in there, I've watched people grab the handle, take it out about six or seven inches, see the chicken feet, and just put it back. <laughs> and so the the concept is funny, but it, it solves a problem. And, yeah. and, and like we were talking before, I really teach people how to be more resourceful. Humor is just one yeah. of the... They have it. And I'd like to pick up on that word, resourceful, full of resources. How can I look at this in a way to identify where the resources are in it? You know, that resourcefulness is is a very useful way to characterize this whole thought process. Well, and people are saying the old term, think outside the box or do more with less. I think humor is the combining of ideas that aren't normally associated with one another. It's at the heart of creativity. And they don't tell people how they can be more resourceful or more creative. Humor, when you start seeing these things, not only do they solve the problems, but they enjoy doing it. And yeah. and uh, it's just a bonus for me when TSA takes it out. They, they have to treat it like a doll and they frisk <laughs> the rubber chicken from <laughs> top to bottom. And it makes the whole trip worthwhile. So that's, but that's ancillary. 
No, that's hilarious. Because <laughs> I can picture them doing that. Oh man, tell tell us about the uh, the policy manual. I have a a policy manual that. Uh, on the front, it says it's my policies, and you can put your picture on the back page of it that just says me. Mm-hmm. And when people say to you, I can't do something because it's my policy, then you pull your manual out and you write in a policy and show it to them. And then, and, and I mean, it's like I had a waitress one time refuse to seat me until the entire dining party had arrived. So I hand wrote the policy manual. If I'm the first of several friends to arrive at a restaurant and the greeter refuses to seat me, I'll be provided free of charge any substance I eat or drink during the <laughs> time the table is withheld no exceptions and and she goes i just saw you write that in that book and so i turned to the section that authorizes me to write new and updated policies as needed said handwritten policy shall immediately become effective and remain in effect till a final policy can be formulated finalized and recorded in the appropriate category and and they'll look at me and go you win you know, yeah, they just give up because yeah. you're going to keep writing policies um, and negate theirs. <laughs> one of the pages just says yes. So if they say no, I can open the book and show them <laughs> yes. And then there's small print policy. And But people want to take that home with them. And now they send me, when they get the books, they send me their policies they've written and how they use them. And it's it's really taken oh, on that, a life I, of its I see own. a book in the future. There's a book in the future. Yeah, and your your audience members are writing it for you. That's correct. And the it's more like chicken soup for the soul, one bite at a time. One bite, yeah, yeah. one policy at yeah. a time. And and it's really then taking that and making it more proactive, like you had suggested before, that yeah. you write pol- – it's not just uh, policies in response to negativity, but you write a positive policy about what you're going to do and that – affirmation, if you will, is in writing, and you can show it to people, you know. My policy is I'm going to be the best, and it's right here. No exceptions, you know. So a lot of fun with that, a lot of fun with that stuff. And I have a lot of them on my my website, and some of them have worked well. Um, I have, like everybody has a checklist. I have on the front things I need to remember, and then on the back you write things you want to forget. And at the end of the day, you shred it. And so uh, it's just uh, it's just fun stuff. But th- what I observe is that you go through a typical day, whatever that ha- day happens to be, traveling or at home or with friends or whatever, and you make the most of playful moments. You know, you find fun ways to react to whatever, whether it's a bureaucrat saying, no, we have a policy against it. Didn't you read the sign? You know, those kind of things that impede normal life. And you come up with some kind of a response that evokes a smile or causes the person to stand there stunned and in shock, not knowing what to say or something. And the next thing you know, that's in one of your presentations on the stage. You're telling stories about something that just happened to you at the parking lot checkout thing when the clerk was was, uh, telling you how many days you had to pay for parking there. And and it's very true, Jim. um, I was staying at a hotel in Miami and got up in my room. It was 100 degrees outside. And I get up in my room and the air conditioning is not working. And and I try to tell people to be in the now, to be present, that this is how we avoid getting angry. And the air conditioning didn't work. I call the front desk and the guy goes, oh, I can't talk to you right now, Mr. Guard. We had a transformer blow up outside the hotel. And I said, is it the Decepticons? Are, are we under attack here? And, and it's just pausing. Yeah, he goes. He goes. He goes. No, sir. It's just one transformer. It's not the Transformers. And I said, Didn't you see that movie? I mean, one of them could kill us all. And he goes, What would you like me to do? I said, You need to call Optimus Prime. We're in a lot of trouble here. And I came down the next morning. They comped my room. The manager really? put a bottle of wine with wow. it, and he said, My staff laughed about that all night long. 
oh, it's just a different, you know, it's just a different love, way of looking yeah. at things, I think. And, and I mean, we travel as professional speakers all the time. It's a journey that we need to enjoy. I, I can't wait to travel. And, and I'm going to have fun, and nobody's going to stop me. <laughs> so let's assume we are your class right now, and you're teaching us how to think in those ways and how to leverage what we do. What, what advice can you give us? Well, I think certain keywords that you say in your programs resonate with your audience more than others. Things that you say that nobody else may say. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that we can develop resources around those that help people to take your message beyond that room so that they can then take those things and import them to others, like your acorn. Yeah, that has become a, yeah, very good. I still have the one you gave me. And I mean, it's something where we want things that they'll take with them. For instance, um, I had a client tell me that whenever she goes to a meeting, she has to save a seat for her boss. And it really bothered her. And it seems minor, but it's an it was a constant irritant. So I got these, it looks like spilled ice cream on a spoon, and it's very realistic, and, and they're called seat savers. So <laughs> uh, they bought like two, three hundred of them and gave them to everybody. And, and they go to a meeting, and that's how you save your seat, is you put that spilled ice cream on a spoon on the seat. And then um, on the ones that I give away in my programs, I have my name and address on them, compliments of Tim Gard. These are things that people take back with them, yeah. put them on their desk, and they are, you know, if they go, who was that guy? Who the, it's right there. So it, it's not like a handout that people may toss. Um, and I think that everybody has this in them. There's got to be something, and it may not even be funny. It may be something that reinforces a real strong point. Um, that uh, I mean, like your acorn, like all yeah. this, and and but they're tangible. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. One of my by newest... the way, for the listeners, I wrote a book called The Acorn Principle, and the acorn metaphor is what Tim's referring to. Sorry, yeah. Yeah. that's okay. Thanks. Yeah. And so the uh, like for me, one of my newest ones is people are being stressed to the edge, and so I have bags of marbles, and on the front they say my marbles. So if somebody they think they've lost them, they oh no, I have them right here. <laughs> You didn't lose your marbles. You haven't lose your marbles. And and people carry, say, one marble in their pocket or their purse. And again, they touch that. It reminds them of what I said, and it carries that message on. And then the next day when somebody says what the speaker talk about, they can hold that, show it to them, and explain the concept. And it helps anchor that. Uh, I think they're like... uh, like, I don't know, like a, a mental virus that sticks in your brain. And, and that's what we're looking for. Yeah, looking for an imprint. What a fun guy full of fun ideas on how to get more. Thank you, Tim. And when it comes to more, there's one thing we all would like some more of, and that is money. Here's a voice you'll recognize, Scott McCain. He's a multi-talented businessman, and he knows just where to find that money. He's been a farmer, a youth leader, a movie reviewer, a radio announcer, a TV commentator, and through it all, a speaker. These things aren't all exactly speaker in the traditional NSA sense, but he's found ways to earn real revenue and build his contacts along the way with some creative opportunities. These are ideas you can use too. We don't talk about these opportunities nearly as much as 
We should, and I'm, I'm really glad you asked, because I think there's an opportunity, for example, for uh, NSA members to go to their local television uh, affiliates, whether it's uh, NBC, Fox, ABC, CBS. Uh, do they have a commentator on business? Do they have a weekly business insider uh, idea, uh, just something that you could do to contribute that gets you a position of influence? Uh, we all know our buddy Jeffrey Gittimer uh, really took his career to another level when he started doing columns for the local uh, business journals, and that became nationally syndicated. Well, it had to start someplace. And now he's got books galore, and he's he's a big name. But it really started because people in Charlotte started reading him in the local business journal, which then branched to business journals all over the country. you got to get local before you can get syndicated in most situations. When I did the movie reviews, I started in Louisville, and, and... became syndicated from there, but I had to get local first so you have something to show about this is what I do. Are there strategic steps uh, in going from local to syndicated or national um, that you need to think of going into it? You know, like if a person didn't go into it right, then they're not in a position to leverage it at the key moment? I think the critical aspect is content. I would have enough information that could be national content as opposed to a local business. Vary that. In other words, if you're going to try to get a syndication package, don't take them all local stories. So they'll go, well, that's great for Indianapolis, yeah. but it might not work in you know Los Angeles. Finder switch. Yeah, wherever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, but I, you know, somebody like Lou Heckler uh, has this great slot on on weekly national television on on PBS. Um, but Lou also, I remember as a kid watching Lou on television in Indianapolis. You know, so yeah. So I mean, it's it's uh, go to that local station, leverage that. Well, then people say, well, that's that's really tough to do. You know, or my local newscast doesn't have the budget for it, or doesn't. Well, here's another alternative. By in most communities, by law, the local cable company has to provide local access. So in other words, you could go in and do your te- television show locally. So now, in Thousand Oaks, California, that's Channel 10. Yeah. And the local access channel, and it usually doesn't even publish its uh, its program schedule. Right. But, but when you click on it, sometimes it's really interesting. Oh, exactly. In yeah. other words, when, uh, television has changed so much because th- there used to be identification with the networks. Yeah. CBS had the rural comedies back when I was a kid. So <laughs> Beverly Hillbillies and Green Acres and all that stuff. Hee-haw. Those uh, Hee Haw. Those shows were. C- so CBS had a, a. Well, now we don't. We're we're a fan of. NCIS. We're a fan of mm-hmm. Family Guy, but we don't think as much about what network that's on. Just that's as true. people don't say, oh gosh, 20th Century Fox has a new movie. You know, with, <laughs> with the exception of Disney and Pixar, right. we, don't, we, we don't identify with the studio or with the network. So if you make the content interesting on local access, the other thing is it provides you with a wealth of material that you could cut up and put on YouTube videos or that you could you'd find ways to, to syndicate in a membership program mm. or any of a myriad of ways that you could use that. And if the content is interesting enough, now you have video that you could show to the broadcast networks. Well, you know, th- 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 there's another dimension to that. They have talented people that are already skilled. Yeah. For example, I was... Uh, speaking for the uh, Council on Aging in Thousand Oaks, mm-hmm. Cherry Paulson, past president of NSA, right. had done a, a presentation for them, and I went there to hear him and support him. And and uh, the people said, "Would you like to do a presentation?" I thought, "Sure, I'll do that." You know, right. and, and that led to uh, well, first off, they broadcast that on local access television. Mm-hmm. It went over well. Yeah, that led to 
other requests that even got me musical gigs where I was performing at the Thousand Oaks Art mm-hmm. Festival. Mm-hmm. And that led to more, and each of these spun off something else. So I, that's a good idea I hadn't thought of. But here's what you said, or when you were talking, it caused me to think about. Paula, my wife Paula and I occasionally perform musically for clubs or restaurants or key events, and we did one, Mm -hmm. and the local TV, local access TV guy came out and videotaped us. Mm -hmm. But he was with a mobile camera and he walked behind us and shot the crowd, he walked in front of us, he got up close, took a, a very close video of my guitar and then up to my face and then backed off and then panned the room. In other words, he was producing a piece of work. Yeah. He was not just a guy who had a camera that I had hired to um, create some footage for me. And I hadn't, until you mentioned it, thought about how, how uh, much that kicks up the talent level well, everyone has to learn someplace, right? And yeah. so that local cable access in many communities is a way that really talented people get their shot. Yeah. And and they try so hard because just like we want it to become part of our demo reel, they want it to become part of theirs, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so it's a, it's a win-win for everyone. And, yeah. and, and some situations, and it depends on the cable company and the community, you could go out and get someone to sponsor your cable access show so it becomes in the early days of your speaking career a revenue generator uh, that that is also a, a broadcast of how smart you are or how engaging you are and 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 also what a great way to meet contacts right i mean sure. I, I i call the ceo of a local company that i might be speaking for hey how would you like to come in and be interviewed for 30 minutes on a television show that could potentially be seen by the entire community. And while you're interviewing them, say, you know, by the way, I, I, I speak at meetings like that. Or, hey, it's a great way to build a relationship. I think I would go in the other direction. Say, take, you know, I'm further along in my career sure. and been doing this 36 years, but I could see that as a way of, of transitioning from traveling all the time mm-hmm. to doing more local-based business and growing some clientele and uh, a following yes. in your own local area. Absolutely. Cool idea. Absolutely. Thank you very you much. You're very welcome. Some good advice on how to earn some big bucks right outside your front door. Thank you, Scott. And now a word from our new president, Ron Carr. Did you ever really work hard to close an engagement only to have something come up that would prevent you from taking it? This happened to me a couple of years ago. After the release of my latest book, Lead, Sell, or Get Out of the Way, I was working really hard to secure a presentation with a large manufacturer in my backyard. Finally, the VP of sales said yes and offered me the keynote at his national sales meeting in Boca Raton. Then it happened. A month after signing the deal, I was sitting at an NSA board meeting and we were reminded of the dates for our November strategic planning meeting. Uh Uh-oh. I looked at my calendar and sure enough, the dates were the same as the keynote I had just booked in Boca. Feeling stupid for not realizing the conflict, I did what any committed NSA board member would do. I asked how many people would like to move the November board meeting to October. (laughs) Not really, but I had to call the client and admit my mistake. I had worked way too hard to lose that revenue and opportunity. So I called the VP of sales and told him, I have good news and I have bad news. He asked what the bad news was. 
I told him I screwed up in my scheduling and I had to be at a board meeting that was previously scheduled. He asked what the good news was. I suggested doing a taped video session where I am interviewing him on the key issues he wants to address and I will in turn add thoughts and concepts from my book. We could kill two birds with one stone, introduce the book, and address his key concerns. He loved the idea. This led to a half-day meeting in his office where he called in a video crew and we spent four hours of quality time creating the program. It turned out to be better than appearing live. For one thing, I never would have had four hours with this executive if I was in Boca. He would have been way too busy with his team. We were able to develop a great relationship. Secondly, I gave him a chance to be in front of his team in an interactive manner that proved to be quite powerful. The bottom line is that while they were in Boca having their meeting and enjoying my lovely mug on video, I was in Phoenix at an NSA board meeting and making money at the same time. Membership truly has its benefits. Ever since the economy tanked, we've all been in situations where we needed to get creative to get or keep business. Creativity and reinvention is the key to long-term success in business and in life. In fact, it is also important for NSA. For example, this summer we launched our VOE and Speaker Magazine apps where you can read and listen to the information you want, when you want to, how you want to, and where you want to. As technology advances and our members use our services differently, we must be creatively thinking ahead. With all of our services this year, the staff and volunteers have been charged with a task to think creatively and look ahead for the best information and services we can provide you, our members. Creativity and reinvention, two critical skills to help us achieve consistent success in our business. It will also be critical if NSA is to remain relevant to our members and our industry. My hope is to lead that charge over the next year. It is an honor to be your president this year. Jim? Thank you, Ron. We're looking forward to your leadership this year. If you have some questions for NSA's leadership team, please send them in, and Ron can address those in future issues of his presidential comments. For that matter, we want to make VOE interactive in as many ways as we can. So anything you want from VOE that you're not currently getting, please let us know. We're happy to listen, learn, and adapt. Clint Greenleaf is not only one of the coolest guys I know, he's pretty much a guru at publishing. He's worked with over 2,500 different titles and had 26 New York Times bestsellers. I sat down to talk with him about the one thing everyone in NSA should know about that we hear over and over again, but just can't seem to get through our thick skulls. We need a book. I speak to a lot of people about publishing, and uh, when, when they're told they have a book somewhere inside them, mm -hmm. I think the best advice in most cases is swallow down hard and keep the book down there. <laughs> so don't write the book. Don't unless. necessarily, right, yeah. right, exactly. So there are some cases where you should write a book, but just writing a book because someone told you to will usually result in a really crappy book. Mm -hmm. um, it's not going to be the most important piece that you do. And in most cases, you're better off building your speaking business first and coming out with a book later once you know what you're going to write about. Um, all too often, people try and throw a book out there and just kind of punt and, and throw it into the, into the ether. 
There's 3,500 books a day released into the market. Get out of here. 3,500 books a day. There is an overpopulation of books, the oversupply and under demand. For the most part, these books have no interest to the average market. Yeah. Um, they're books that are never going to see the, the light of day of a bookstore. They're not going to see an airport bookstore. Mm -hmm. And all too often, if the book isn't going to be have any real commercial value, there's no reason to put forth the effort, the energy, and all that, uh, and all the, the cost expense, into it. Yeah. Sure, sure. So what's the key to it? How do, how do I know if the book that's in me deserves to come out? The number one question is, why do you think you want a book? What is the book going to do for you? If the book is going to get your mentor off your back because your mentor told you to have a book, that's mm -hmm. a bad idea to do it. If your book is going to make your ex-girlfriend feel like a knucklehead because she dumped you, that's not a good reason to do it. <laughs> but if your book is going to build your brand, if it's going to be a business card that tells people, wow, Jim is a brilliant guy and I want to go out and hire him to come speak, mm -hmm. he has really good content. That's going to be fantastic. I would recommend that you make it absolutely attractive, not kind of attractive. You don't just you know, throw on some uh, ratty old clothes when you go on your first date. Yeah. You make sure you look good. Your book is your first date. It's a business card of sorts. You make that's, look that's something I've heard people say again and again, and I, I agree. Uh, the best value a book can give someone, aside from becoming a bestseller, is to be a great business card because it walks people through the process. But I've ha had people object. They say, well, no, no, I don't want to write it all down and put it in a book because then people will know my method and they won't hire me to speak. If they would read it, that's possible. Well, yeah, but, but luckily yeah. what happens is someone reads the book and tells their friends. Think about every book you've loved. You yeah. tell people, go out and read this. It's my favorite book. You get excited about it. You even buy copies for your friends. Exactly. If your content's worthwhile, people will tell people about it. Plus, I've found that people, once they've read it and they love what's in it, they don't want to have to remember it, learn it, and walk people through the text. They want to bring you, the author of it, in to teach them that. Right. They want yeah. to customize it. So I read Jim Collins' Good to Great, and I say, God, Jim is brilliant. Uh -huh. But how does this apply to me and my business? Right. So I've only got $10 million in revenue. How does that compare to a bigger company? Well, you know what? I'm going to go out and hire Jim, bring him in, and have him tell me how I can make my company great. Mm-hmm. That's the value in doing this. You want to give them away all the secrets. The people who get worried about, oh, what if I, if I have a PDF and someone finds my book on the internet, then everyone can see my book. With all due respect, you should be so lucky. If two million people <laughs> are reading your book, you're thinking, hell, that's actually probably a very good thing. If your name is in front of that many people, that's probably a great problem to have. You bet. So how do you take people from the, the first step when someone meets you and they say, oh, Hey, I'm I'm going to write a book. You know, how do I work with you? What what's your kind of an overview of that process? We have a submission process where people can apply on our website and mail in the manuscript and we have a pretty extensive review process where we have a whole committee that reads through every single book that comes in. Excellent. We accept between three and three and a half percent of the books that come in. Uh, most books just aren't a good fit for us. Mm -hmm. um, one thing we do that's a little bit different is, of course, we don't charge a reviewing fee and we actually give reasons why we don't think it's a good fit for us. That doesn't mean that it's not a good book, but we'll try and explain yeah. why we don't think it's a good fit for us. So you don't just give people a no, you give them a no because of right. blank. And that, that may actually spark a conversation. Someone yeah. may say, oh, we didn't tell you about our marketing plan because we didn't have time or we didn't have one yet. But Didn't think it'd be relevant. Right. And in a lot of cases, that's the most important thing. I mean, in all reality, the marketing of the book... No one is ever going to do that for you. It's always going to fall on the author, no matter who you publish with. Publishers don't sell books. Right. Publishers don't sell books. Publishers provide you a pipeline, and it's the author's job to go out and actually create the demand for the book, send people to the bookstores. Good. Well, are there any other sacred cows or, or uh, 
elephants in the room for NSA that that you'd like to slay right here in front of God and everybody? <laughs> I, I absolutely love NSA. I've been an active member for 11 years now. Um, and I say this with all due respect, knowing that some of these people are actually probably listening, but there are some people who put their face in the cover of the book. Mm-hmm. And if you can walk through a mall and no one recognizes you, chances are you probably do not belong in the cover of your book. The best examples for this are if you're incredibly good looking based on someone else's point of view, um, or if in your industry you're incredibly well known, Mm -hmm. then it may make sense to do it. But this is probably your first four or five seconds to get someone to pick your book up off the shelf. And this is your first date opportunity. You want whatever it is that's going to be most compelling to get your end consumer to pick that up off the shelf. In a bookstore, you've got 25,000 other titles there. On Amazon, you've got four or five million titles there. You want to have the most compelling reason for someone to spend more time looking at your book, either to open it up, flick it up, open the back cover, to scroll down and find out the table of contents. You have to give them a reason to do it, so make that three seconds as valuable as possible. And your own face is probably not the way to do it. The words are. I would argue, yeah, yeah I, 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 as nicely as I can put that. For, for yeah. example, on my books, I'm not putting me in the cover of the books. There, there's no reason for that. I'm going to put a, a uh, good sales copy on the front cover of my books. Thank you very much, Clint. Our second musician for this month is Lee Robert. Yes, the daughter of Cabot Robert, our founder. Lee is not only a professional musician as well as a professional speaker, but she's a songwriter and a a published songwriter who's done quite well in that field. And one of the songs she wrote many years ago was a tribute to her dad, our founder. It's called The Lamplighter. Remember as you listen to this that Lee is talking about our founder, Cavett Robert. Every night when twilight comes, a man I'd like to know Comes to light the lantern's eye when he walks on down the road My papa is a banker man and his daddy was before but I want to be a lamplighter as I walk to heaven's door. Oh, Mr. Lamplighter, take me by the hand. I don't know just where you're going, but I know where you've been. Please, Mr. Lamplighter. Let me walk with you Show me how to show the way With a light that shines so true mm-hmm. Yes, he lights the way for those who walk the pilgrim's journey road Cause there are those that would turn back A carrying their load But dark to light he fills the night And hope can build anew I want to be a lamplighter Who lights the way for you Oh, Mr. Lamplighter 
take me by the hand I don't know just where you're going But I know where you've been Please, Mr. Lamplighter Let me walk with you Show me how to show the way With words that speak so true special thank you this month to Bruce Turkell for the Fire Never Died music and to Lee Robert for the Lamplighter. When it comes to voices of experience, the man behind the curtain, the wizard, is Rocky Heyer. Rocky's been doing the editing for VOE for quite some time and he's truly a master at putting all this together. Early this year, when I was appointed chairman of VOE by Ron Carr, I reached out 
Tonito Kubain at High Point University, and I asked him if the Tonito Kubain School of Communication had a professor and maybe some students who could help us in crafting each edition to make it even more current, more creative, and more professional. And they stepped forward. Dr. Roger Clodfelter is working with us. And he appointed Alina Aldrich to be my producer for this edition of VOE. And she has done a masterful job. It's exciting to start this year off with VOE with such a great lineup of talent and fascinating ideas. You know, the reasons people choose a speaking career are many. Some do it to become more successful, some to express themselves, some to make a difference, some to build a legacy, to advance another career that they have, or to connect with others. And, and many of us have a combination of those as our reasons for being in this business. Well, whatever your reason is, I'm going to try to tailor VOE to your interest this year in so many ways from so many different angles that you expand your thinking about what it means to be a speaker and a subject expert. Please communicate with me and let me know how I can help you this year. I'm happy to bring to you the resources that will truly make a difference for our profession. This is Jim Cathcart. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.